everybody and welcome to another episode of the ll research podcast in the now i am austin bridges and this is episode number 60 ll research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community and towards this end we have two websites the archive website llresearch.org and the community website, bringforth.org. During each episode, we respond to questions sent to LL Research from spiritual seekers like you. Our panel consists of Jim McCarty, Gary Bean, and myself, each of us a devoted student of the Law of One. Your questions allow us to explore the Law of One and related matters of metaphysical interest. We hope only to offer a resource that enhances your own seeking process. Please know that our replies are not final or authoritative. We ask each who listens to exercise their discernment and be sensitive to their resonance in determining what is true for them. If you would like to submit a question for this show, please do so. Our humble podcast relies on your questions. You may either send an email to contact at llresearch.org or go to llresearch.org slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I am Austin, and we're embarking on a new episode of LL Research's podcast in the now. Gary and Jim, are you with me and ready to go? Indeed. I am. Alrighty. Well, our question today uh, comes from our friend Jeremy, uh, sent in through Bring Forth, and he asks... Confederation sources have spoken at length on the utility of trauma and suffering and spiritual evolution of third-density entities. But what about the suffering of second-density entities like animals? What purpose might that serve when there is no choice to be made? That is a good and difficult question. Uh, Gary, would you like to start us off? Sure, I'll see what I've got. Um, It is a good and difficult question, and there's no... um, Nothing that I'm aware of that speaks directly to it from the law of one. But one can make some reasonable and, I hope, educated speculation. Um, And considering your question, Jeremy, my mind first went to a model of a Darwinian survival of the fittest, uh, which, um, side note, I read has been generally replaced in professional circles as reproduction of the fittest. Survival not quite covering the nuances. Um... So my mind goes there because just as suffering galvanizes and catalyzes our evolutionary imperative to make a choice, to polarize our consciousness, to choose our mode of service, so too might suffering meet the needs of the evolutionary objectives of second density. Uh, That is to say, uh, suffering can be a teacher to second density entity in helping the 2D being to strive to adapt to survive, to reproduce, to move, to reach toward the light, and eventually uh, toward self-awareness. Suffering, especially the suffering of becoming another animal's lunch, uh, may propel the 2D being to excellence. Without the environmental challenges that cause pain or that threaten or impede survival or limit reproduction, the impetus to evolve might not exist. Uh, similar, perhaps, to the way Ra described the insufficient development of will and faith 
in the prevailed third density societies. Um, they simply weren't motivated to do their work in consciousness. I guess that's one way you could put it. To seek or to serve. So perhaps without physical suffering or challenge, second density entities would not have the, I guess you could call it, will and motivation. And I'll save some other thoughts for later. Back to you, Austin. Uh, thank you. How about you, Jim? What do you think? Well, I think Gary's right in the fact that uh, suffering can teach. Uh, animals can learn. I think that the... Um, well, I, I go back to um, my little kitty cat, Pickwick, who just passed away about a month and a half ago. His suffering generated in me a great deal of compassion. And I think that there might be some connection between the suffering of the second-density animals and compassion that can be generated in third-density beings, whether the animal is your pet or just, uh, in general, animals that are in need. Uh, over the last few months, I've gotten a lot of letters from charities. They're looking for money to help um, endangered species or animals that are being uh, cruelly abused, anywhere from racehorses to Arabian horses to draft horses to cats and dogs to baboons and chimpanzees. Um, there's just all kinds of... Uh, suffering that's going on in the world, and it generates a lot of uh, compassion on the part of third-density human beings. So I, I think there's a, a connection there that's helpful to the third-density being to, to witness and respond to suffering of that nature. I also think that uh, the possibility of the latent uh, existence of the spirit complex within second-density animals can perhaps be brought a bit more into being by the suffering of the animal as it... Uh, has to exercise its mind complex to figure out how to avoid the suffering or uh, end it now, uh, somehow get away from it. Um, I think all things and all animals uh, are part of a life force which occasionally moves in unexplainable patterns and what causes things like avalanches to occur, cascading down a mountainside and dislodging plants and animals and rocks and dirt. So that all the things in its path are subject to the seeming whims of these geophysical forces, the movement of tectonic plates, the sun, the wind, the rain, ice. It's all the uh, exercises of the third-density illusion. Everybody and everything gets to be involved. And we need to remember that the one creator exists in each portion of the creation, in all uh, animals, in all plants, in all minerals. And uh, somehow is probably working out more of a means of which to know itself in every little uh, thing that happens, every raindrop, forest fire, ice storm, suffering by every animal, and every leaf falling from a tree. So I think that maybe the plan of the Creator to know itself can work itself out in anything that we can possibly imagine. There's nothing that we can imagine that wouldn't teach the Creator something about itself, including the suffering of second density animals. How about you, Austin? What do you think? That's a really good answer. Um, <clears throat> I dove a little bit into the raw material uh, when Don and Ra were discussing actually pain as it relates to the veil, essentially. So uh, my, the first part of my answer is sort of based off of that, and it's addressing Jeremy's question directly, what purpose might that serve? So in session 83, Ra discusses the differences between the pre-veil and the post-veil entities. And apparently, in the prevailed condition, entities were able to um, turn off their pain receptors at will. I imagine uh, that the way the second-density entities in that era experienced pain 
was also different in a sense because of the way that Logoi set up evolution for third density. So I'll talk a little bit more about that um, later. But Ra goes on to talk about how removing this ability through the implementation of the veil, um, that's the ability to turn off your pain receptors and basically stop experiencing pain whenever you want to, removing that was sort of a mechanical function. They describe experiments where uh, various functions of the body were veiled and others were not. For instance, like the beating of the heart and these pain receptors and things like that. And in their words, uh, it is not a survival-oriented mechanism for the nerve receptors to blank out unconsciously any distortion towards pain. They say that in doing so, a large number of these experiments resulted in what they called non-viable body complexes, which I interpret to mean that those body complexes didn't survive very long because of this. So, sort of as Gary was saying, it's like a, a evolutionary thing. In my view, pain is basically a feedback mechanism that allows us to increase our survivability initially. It existed prevail, but it was able to be muted once it served its initial function and it didn't become a problem when there wasn't a veil. For some reason, once the veil was implemented, this ability to mute pain started creating problems in survivability. Uh, Ra talks about entities unconsciously blanking out any distortion towards pain. And I'd imagine that in an entity who has an unconscious mind and isn't aware of the survival utility of pain, they might just turn off their pain receptors completely and never experience pain again if that's within their ability to do so. So the persistence of pain is something that seems like was necessary for survival post-veil. I think that uh, that is also true for second density, and maybe even more true for second density, as they are not able to consciously contemplate the benefits of pain and survival and abstractly approach the survival needs. So if they had this ability to shut off these pain receptors, then a second density entity might have lower chances of survival. And so when laying the groundwork for a veiled existence in second density, uh, it's likely that this persistence of pain was necessary for survival, but then it created a system of catalysts that was not previously usable. And that's what, uh, those are Don's words when talking about it. In the experimenting with the need for pain, it was discovered that this catalyst was an effective means of evolution. And so then the Logoi probably began building upon that and experimenting in various ways that pain was useful, maybe mostly in third density, but in order for that to be available in third density, it had to evolve through second density first. We know that there's a lot about our body complexes and our mental functioning in general planned by the Logos that was then implemented through the evolution of second density entities. For instance, our opposable thumbs, Ra claims, were a planned thing through the Logos, but if we look at it through evolution, it seems like that arose simply through biological reproduction and uh, mutating genes. So uh, the opposable thumbs, probably not very useful in second density in general, except maybe to increase survivability, then become a, a method in third density for 
producing catalyst may be similar to pain. And there are so many other things about our third density bodies and our minds that come from our second density existence. We are basically animals with an ability to think about ourselves. There's really not that much more unique about us. So uh, that's my initial thoughts about what sort of function it serves. Maybe initially survivability, but once it was figured out that this was useful for evolution in third density, it probably became more and more refined and um, uh, second density experiences pain for survival, but also to lay the groundwork for the third density catalyst. Um, you guys have any more thoughts on that initial round of discussion? Not I. Uh, yeah, I find it a really interesting take to link the, at least the category of physical suffering in third density entities to the groundwork that was laid in second density. Uh, and um, I would concur in general, largely, rather, with that idea. But um, I would add, of course, that the third density entity, um, I mean, maybe diving into the question of what is suffering and what is the nature of suffering, but Obviously, there are far more complex ways, emotional ways, mental ways. Maybe Ra even indicates spiritual ways that the third density entity can suffer, whereas the suffering of the second density entity, except perhaps for those higher second density beings, like elephants and dolphins and dogs and cats and so forth, um, the second density suffering is largely of a, I would say, physical nature. Though... Probably among all mammals, especially those who care for their young, there may be an emotional dimension of suffering in that, say, if the baby squirrel is threatened, the mother squirrel, it's far more than a, a physical catalyst, but may pull on those emotional bonds, if they can be said to be emotional, between mother and uh, offspring. Well, that sort of leads me to uh, my next idea for discussion. Um, last week we tried having a more casual show and more casual discussion, and we're going to try to extend that this week and expand this topic because I think that it's a pretty interesting and deep topic. So the question that I would uh, propose to you two is, what is your take on just what is the fundamental difference between animals and humans? Why would uh, humans have an ability to process pain catalyst and second density animals not? It might be a pretty simple answer, but I think it is an unaddressed basis for the question that Jeremy asked. Uh, Jim, what do you think? Well, if you look at the basic construction of uh, any animal brain and the human brain, you discover that there's uh, a portion of the human brain that is not contained in the animal brain. That's the frontal lobes. And these apparently give us a whole lot more abilities that are pretty much latent right now, but also help us to uh, process information. The, uh, the cortex, the neocortex, also is more developed in the human being so that there can be more processing of, um, I guess you say processing of catalyst, processing of information coming into the brain. So uh, I think that the, uh, basically the, uh, the animal has um, the fundamental features of the human brain and that it can 
see the environment around it, and it can uh, respond to certain portions of the environment that have a specific uh, relationship to its needs at that moment, whether the needs are for survival or food or shelter or um, whatever it might be for the animal. So um, especially those of us who have pets, we notice that they learn how to do uh, whatever they um, need to do at the moment. For example, my cat right now is uh, wandering around the room in the fashion that he always does when he says to me that he wants to go outside. (laughs) Uh, I've had three pets, and each one has had a a different way of telling me. Uh, Chloe will go over to the door and look. She'll sit there, and she'll look up at the top of the door. That means she would like to have that door open so she can go out. Uh, Pickwick, when he was here, would go over to the door, and he would yowl at it (laughs) as if maybe he could make it open. And, of course, like I just mentioned on Dandelion, he, uh, he, he just wanders back and forth and, and lets me know, well, I, I want to go do this wandering outside on the other side of that door. So uh, our animals can do certain things at a, you know, a level of, that uh, even we humans can understand. <laughs> and uh, I find that um, animals are pretty good at training me, and probably us, <laughs> and uh, helping us discover what it is that they need. And it uh, doesn't take too long before we actually catch on. So, see, there, he, he was making his comment there. I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> but um, I'll pass it over to you, Gary, so that I can actually uh, respond to my, my end. All right. Um, yeah, that's a great place to start in terms of the physiology of the brain because um, I have not read much about it, but um, our brains can be partitioned into evolutionary chapters. Sort of a, like a, a, a biographical evolutionary biography, going back to like the primitive reptilian brain prefrontal cortex. I forget the term. People talk about the reptilian brain. Is that is a prefrontal cortex? Is that? What oh, you know, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't know. I don't know something <laughs> about that, but I know that I've heard it called the reptilian brain. <laughs> yeah, likewise. And there's just these su- successive um, sections or, or parts of the brain that have been added on, and, and that's uh, definitely one way to see, make visible, rather the difference. Um, you could look in terms of chakras too, uh, as to what is different in our. Um, in our experiences and uh the animal the the second density being is you know an orange ray being so their consciousness because all things are alive as ross said and have some degree of consciousness their consciousness is more advanced and more complex than uh, that of the red the elemental red ray but less uh complex and sophisticated than ours of the yellow ray. And um, so, therefore, the parameters of their reality are, for the most part, going to be bound up in that which is unique to orange ray, um, including uh, issues of survival, reproduction, movement, and the gradual striving toward the yellow ray of um, self-awareness and group identity. Um, Their group identity is of a less, of course, sophisticated nature, such as the wolf pack, which identifies itself as the pack and has not yet perceived the possibility of 
service to others or service to self. So there's the the chakra viewpoint. And uh, my final like reply to your question about how do we differentiate the two, um, I can only, I have recourse only to hackneyed terms. And I would say that to use such terms, they live, uh, as, as Jim is describing, this instinctual life that is, um, you know, they're operating according to evolutionary programs that, of course, are modified on a species level over great spans of time. For instance, like the bird might change its beak to adapt better to crack open a certain nut or um, mm-hmm. they might grow a certain type of hair that blends them in with the environment or, or whatever, or evolve even into a whole new species. And the dinosaurs eventually became birds, uh, from what I understand. So what was I saying? Yeah, so they have this um, instinctual species-level programming that is largely dictating their behaviors, I'm sure with certain individual variations, um, whereas the person is also uh, operating according to a lot of programming. But the human, the third density being, has a capacity to step back and reflect on that programming and to analyze it and to um, even potentially choose new programming altogether. Uh, Like Austin was saying, we can basically think. We're animals that can think about ourselves. Um, So those are a few thoughts that come to my mind. Yeah, I think um, me as well, when I think about it, it is the fundamental thing that both of you discussed. Jim, you talked about us being able to process information in a different way. And to me, that implies sort of the abstract thought of how we can process information. Like, um, Gary, you were just talking about animals are largely instinctual. And, you know, that's mostly true. They process information as it happens to them. And then once it passes, they don't think about it anymore. Yeah. Uh, we process information that isn't directly available to us in our you know, direct present experience. We can think back to something that happened to us. We can think forward to something that might happen to us. And uh, like you're saying, we still have instincts and we are probably more beholden to the instincts than we would like to think. Mm-hmm. But uh, animals are basically just instinctual. They are operating on, like you're saying, this uh, thousands of years of evolution and then conditioning that had happened to them within that lifetime. So I think, I don't know how the veil necessarily plays into that, but um, I think it's the veil that has sort of awarded the third density uh, self-awareness in the way that we think about it. And I think another, I wouldn't say problem, but something that arises when we as third density beings can consider the self as individual and separate from everything around us. Uh, Think about ourselves abstractly in the way that animals simply can't is that we start to form stories about ourselves. We build up a narrative around our life. We sort of, when we think about ourselves, we are the main character in this drama that is uh, human life. And, we tend to transpose that drama, I think, on other beings, maybe other people, but especially animals, because animals can't talk to us and tell us what their story is because they can't talk to us for one thing, but also they don't 
put themselves in a story. They don't have a story of the self like we do. And humans are able to form this narrative around our lives that creates more meaning for the things we experience, like pain. When we experience a deep sort of pain, we will continue to think about that pain uh, throughout our days, whether it's still there or not, and it will continue to affect the way that we define ourselves. And I think a good example of how these stories affect the way that we process pain is how um, Sam Harris, I read a book of his once, and he used this analogy that said, um, uh, if you experience the pain that a muscle builder, a, a, a weightlifter experiences at the peak of their workout, in the middle of their like most intense uh, pump of iron, you know, they're in an immense amount of pain at that moment, but they will all tell you that it is an amazing sensation. If you experience that pain, but remove all the context of them weightlifting and the bodybuilding and the positive uh, interpretation of it, that would be one of the most agonizing experiences that you could have. And if you have a different story surrounding that pain, uh, let's say you have a story of a victim instead of a story of a powerful being who is utilizing your muscles, you might then interpret that pain as some of the biggest suffering that the universe has given to anybody. So uh, I think that our ability to create stories around this pain is part of why and how we process it differently. And then that also makes us ask questions about why do second density entity second density entities suffer the way that we do and i don't think that they do i think even the pain they experience is fundamentally different because while it is suffering it is pain and you know it does call us to relieve it they don't experience the same sort of trauma or story around that pain that we do um you guys have any more thoughts not I. Um, regarding animals telling us their experience gen with most humans, self-included, that is the case. But I will say that I've met an animal, animal psychic who uh, came to our house and um, relayed information from our dog, allegedly. And she was amazing. And uh, we felt like we had generally genuinely rather receive communication but um i mean what you're saying it, it holds true i'm just saying that there are possibilities oh there's another little story um i think i mentioned it to you once austin there's um this little vignette in uh i think it's talks with sri ramana maharshi where um so he uh was an enlightened fellow in the first half of the 20th century living in India and ashram grew up around him people would come to see him and ask him questions and he just sat there with his loincloth and replied with enlightened information and there was one day where um, Ramana speaks to I guess the staff there the, the caretakers of the ashram and said uh, like why did you remove the bird's nest and uh, the the staff is um, says because whatever um, they were the birds were disruptive or doing something, and uh, I'm butchering the story a little bit. But Ramana learned about this information from the sparrow itself, from the bird, came and told 
Maharshi, and that's how he found out about it, and that's how he kind of castigated his uh, the the staff a little bit. So, and there's other stories like uh, Saint Francis apparently could communicate with animals. But um, back to your point about uh, the stories we create, like I agree entirely. They they may have some level of story, but it's not, uh, I would say, quite like humans. Um, I back to their instinctual behaviors. In the event that they experience pain, um, it has to be recorded somehow on a species level, but they don't build a drama around it per se. Perhaps some high second-density entities do, like um, one's uh, dog companion might you know, feel have a story of being rejected or being celebrated or being jealous because uh, another dog was brought into the house or something. But I recall um, Eckhart Tolle describing how he learned a lot by watching ducks or geese on a pond. And he, he I remember him mentioning once that they would, when they would get angry at one another, they had uh, let it out, squawk and make sounds, maybe beat their wings at one another or something. But then it dissipates and they resume what they were doing beforehand. Whereas uh, two humans in that situation would probably make a, a larger trauma of it. it. Might even lead to them not talking with one another anymore. It'll lead to violence. Who knows? Um, I, I probably have, for people who might listen to this show, a somewhat controversial opinion. Uh, but when I was talking about humans transposing stories onto animals, um, I would think that in the context of like an animal psychic, uh, given that they are communicating with the animal, I would say that it is probably the case that the person is interpreting the animal's you know, experiences and thoughts and feelings as a story and then telling that story for the animal instead of the animal actually telling that story and that's what yeah. the human is relaying similarly to any animal um and like when you like you're saying higher density higher second density entities probably have a capacity to do this but in general communication requires abstract thought we have to be able to organize information and present it in a non-instinctual way really uh to to communicate in a way that isn't just instinctual uh, these are my needs, this is what I want, things like that. And, um, you know, stories as we experience them can still be built upon that same sort of instinct and conditioning that animals experience. We just have uh, a bigger way to think about them. Like an animal can be jealous, uh, or what we would consider jealous, but that is still sort of an instinctual reaction. It's sort of a, there's a resource that they are protecting because they are instinctual their instincts tell them they need to protect their resources. And uh, then we help them build a story. And I think that's sort of why our interaction with second density beings helps them to evolve is because we put these stories on them and treat them as though they are real and sort of <laughs> let the animals fake it until they make it, as they say. Um, uh, we uh, show them that, you know, life can be thought about in bigger ways and that we treat them as if their life is bigger than their instincts and um, it becomes bigger than their instincts as they interact with us. So I do think that pets might have that capacity, but in general, uh, I don't think second density entities can necessarily communicate in the form of story, but humans might interpret that communication as story. 
quick follow-up that um that insight had occurred to me when she was the psychic was relaying the information because my dog apparently was communicating in remarkably um human <laughs> terms <laughs> and uh i figured there was like a translation there that it's it's the psychic's world view that's kind of taking the um this the the seed threads and then weaving it into human and intelligibly human communication and then one other quick thought oh yeah so just as you were making the point earlier about how the second density is the biological foundation of third density and that foundation of course goes all the way back to first density but biology especially is established um in second density and then um, refined in third density just so we have within ourselves not only that biology but animalistic behaviors too we have those same energy centers we have that same level of consciousness that can through work be uplifted and refined but at base it's still there and we still actually see animalistic behavior playing out um, on our globe so one means of relating to the animal mindset may also be to look within and see that animal within ourselves which isn't just restricted to the realm of survival and reproduction but basic um, base emotions too may have their roots in animal consciousness as well like we were talking about jealousy Mm -hmm. if the animal can experience jealousy then that's you know it starts with an animal level of consciousness and maybe other basic emotions too start there yeah so as we are wrapping up our show uh, one final question primarily for you jim if it's um it's okay to ask you to speak about this. Uh, we're talking about um, a pain, essentially, and how we process it. And I think that uh, Carla probably is a human exemplary example of how pain um, can exist in one's body, but a person can transcend that pain and live a spiritual life. Um, in spite of it, I guess, might not be the right word, but um, I think you might get the gist of what I'm talking about. Do you have any a, a personal take on uh, your experiences with Carla or, and how she experienced pain and uh, the spiritual approach to that? Well, she experienced pain for most of her life due to arthritis, and the arthritis was supposed to be programmed for her to focus more on the inward journey of uh, meditation and prayer and channeling and so forth, and not the outward expression of physical energies. That's why she didn't have much physical energy. So she experienced a good deal of pain because she kept trying to exceed her limitations. And uh, Ra mentioned how it wasn't necessary for her to experience the pain if she would uh, stay within certain limitations. But being the lover of life as she was, she uh, would exceed limitations and then she'd be in pain. And a lot of the pain was because she'd had pain for a long time. After a while, the body becomes very sensitive to the the, uh, concept of pain and it's likely to generate the pain just because it's been doing it for so long. So I know in her later life, when she was experiencing so much pain from the two back surgeries, that she made it a spiritual practice each morning before she uh, arose or decided to consciously take part in the day to, uh, to pray and to consider the quality of pain that particular day and whatever it was, and to bless it, and to make a determination herself that 
she would make an extra effort to be cheerful so that people who came into her room or came in contact with her would not be aware of her pain. She didn't want to stand out and to generate so much sympathy or even pity from people. So she uh, didn't necessarily hide the pain, but she didn't uh, allow it to take over her consciousness and um, be something that formed the way she behaved during the day. So what she did instead was to um, determine to be a, a joyful person, to let the pain be an instigator of more joy and more uh, love and acceptance of those around her. So that was what I experienced with Carla, and I was always amazed at how I, she was able to do that because I know she was in incredible pain. I think I remember her talking one time, or uh, she wrote about it, how she referred to her pain as sister pain. Yeah. Mm. Well, she wrote a poem called Sister Pain. Oh, yeah, that must be what it is. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, any final thoughts, Gary? Were you at our time? Yeah, we're about about ready to end the show. Okay. Yeah, I had another question we could dive into, but uh, otherwise, no. All righty. Uh, any final words for our listeners, Jim? Yes, indeed. I just want you folks to know how much we do care about you, how much we love you, and how uh, grateful we are for any questions you send to us. And we're grateful for you just being out there, listening to what we have to say. If anything we say uh, strikes a certain chord of... Uh, resonance in you and you want to respond and um, send more questions or just comments we'd love to hear from you uh, we hope that you will take the information and use it as you will whatever has use for you use it whatever doesn't drop it by the wayside and um, if you have a chance today smile at somebody you don't even know send them a little love and of course for the people you do know give them extra love we love you all cheerio you've been listening to ll researchers podcast in the now if you've enjoyed the show, please visit our websites, llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thank you so much for listening, for supporting this podcast with your questions, and a special thank you to Jeremy for submitting the question that we discussed today. If you'd like to hear us ramble on about a particular topic, please read the instructions on our page at www.llresearch.org podcast. New episodes are published through the archive website every other Wednesday afternoon, roughly. Sometimes we might skip a week. Uh, have a wonderful couple of weeks, and we will talk with you then.